Hello, and welcome back to the HCD VidCast. This is episode seven, hopefully, um, of our Curious Conversations. Today is one that is super near and dear to Catherine I's heart's uses and abuses in behavioral science. Um, that means, well, you'll see what it means, but we love to talk about the best way and the worst ways to use neuroscience and psychology and consumer research. So this will be a super fun episode. I'm glad you could join us, um, the HCD vidcast. Uh, so welcome back to those of you that have joined us on this journey and a big welcome to those of you who are new. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Now today it's just gonna be Catherine and I. Again, my name is Michelle Nigella, VP of Research and Innovation at HCD, PhD in Behavioral Neuroscience. Been working in um, consumer research for about you know 15 years now and um, really happy to talk about this topic. I'm here with the wonderful Catherine Ambrose. Hi everyone. Yep, I'm Catherine Ambrose, the manager of behavioral and marketing sciences with our research and innovation team at HCD Research. And um, fun fact, this is the conversation, this is the first conversation Michelle and I ever had. It was about uses and abuses <laughs> in neuroscience. And it was, I, it was, I remember getting off the phone and I was like, finally, somebody understands my like, I, I always get, I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way there. There's such a, a big debate about ethics within neuroscience, which we're mm -hmm. going to dive into today. So I'm-, I'm Oh yeah, and ethics covers a lot of a lot of different topics. Um, you know, I, I this is my manifesto, I, I call it. <laughs> um, you know, it's my burning down my own house conversation where, you know, this is the field that we've chosen to be in, but there's so much good and bad in it. Um, and it really, really requires us, us to really speak about it. So exciting to talk about it today. Um, before we launch into the conversation, just a little bit of background for those of you that aren't familiar with us. We are with HCD Research, which is a consumer and market research house. Uh, we look at how consumers perceive, evaluate, and respond to different types of stimuli. Um, that could be anything from communications and media to you know, consumer experiences in store or with products. Um, that could include anything from exploration all the way through validation, from product development all the way through marketing. We use uh, consumer neuroscience as well as psychology and traditional methods, uh, market research methods. Um, the work that we do is done globally. Uh, we can go anywhere with it, either online or in person, and we have done so. Um, and so let's let's launch right into today's conversation on uses and abuses of neuroscience. I think. It's really important to start with the basics, right? Because I think when people think of neuroscience, they often think of, you know, strapping gear onto someone's head. Right. And being able to read minds, right? That's always what people want. Really always. Cool. It's always the mind reader joke. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and most people don't even realize that it's kind of a joke, right? They don't realize that you can't read minds, right? Exactly. And I think that I'm glad we're starting with this slide because it really does ground us into what neuroscience really um, is at its core. Um, it's, you know, the idea of the brain having neurons and really sending those chemical signals. So it's- Yeah, so let's, let's start from the bottom. Like right. the brain is made up of neurons. You can see that in the bottom, bottom left of this slide. Um, neurons send information around, right? Neurons are these tiny little cells basically that they carry information and they communicate with one another. And that's how you do things. So this is all describing how you can do what you do, be it 
breathing or talking or making decisions. It's all based on the neuron and how it communicates with muscles, how it communicates with other neurons. Um, and that communication can happen with electrical pulses or with chemical neurotransmitters, right? right. Um, and these neurons and their connections make up your brain, which is only a few pounds, right? So, you know, it's only, you know, smaller than, than the size of your head, obviously. Um, and the thing that I like people to take a step back and appreciate about neuroscience is that these tiny little neurons, there are 100 billion neurons in your brain. And those 100 billion neurons have 100 trillion connections. And all of that is to do the very basics from keeping you alive and breathing and standing upright all the way through making complex decisions, dreaming, planning for lunch, all of those things are based on 100 billion neurons and 100 trillion connections. The brain is complicated, right? Right, right. Exactly. And I think that it's really important too to realize that while these these three pictures are, are really great representations, it's very, very generalized. And, you know, the idea of... Oh. That's okay. Continue on. <laughs> so the idea of like how that really happens is that, you know, not only do you have things sending signals, but you have... Um, positive signals, meaning encouraging things to happen, but you also have things that are suppressing action, right? Exactly. So for example, if you have pain, you might want you might want to suppress that a little bit, right? So you don't have constant pain all the time. A lot of, uh, one example I like to give is that you're wearing clothes right now, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm wearing clothes it's right now. <laughs> but, and, and your skin has neurons um, that sense the has receptors on your skin that senses that you're wearing clothes you can feel that there's pressure on your skin right mm -hmm. now those neurons actually uh inhibit that signal so you don't constantly feel your clothing right right if you constantly felt your clothing you would actually go insane right you would be in pain all of the time and so there's all these different actions that are going on where sometimes you feel your clothing, sometimes you don't. All these things are just going on all over the place in brain. It's very complicated. It's not so simple. And another example I like to give about that complexity is if you could read the brain, your brain would have to be so simple that it was that of a sea slug, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> which is the main thing that neuroscientists use to study you know, exactly. neural activity because that's something you can see. Um, but human brains are very complicated. And so it's, you know, reading the mind is not so simple. But along comes neuromarketing, right? About maybe 15, 20 years ago at this point. Um, and so a loose definition of what neuromarketing is, is that, or at least how I like to find it, is that it's the knowledge of esoteric, anatomic, cellular, and signal processing to somehow understand consumer interaction with products and communications. So what does that mean? Neuroscience is a lot of chemistry and physics and biology and psychology coming from academia on things right. like how cells work, you know, what is involved in the anatomy of the brain? What's the electronic pulses? What are they doing? Um, and somehow neuromarketing takes that and says, I can take this understanding of this cell process and understand something about predicting consumer's purchase intent. Right. It's just such a huge leap to go from somewhere that was, especially in academia, uh, when work is being done, a lot of time, a lot of 
time and energy is put into understanding exactly what conditions caused said outcome. And if you're just gonna, you know, take the findings from that and just kind of, and try to blow it up into this large scale um, right. application in industry, there's obviously going to be some setbacks. Right, because what happens in the lab isn't exactly what happens in the rest of the world, right? Exactly. Outside right. in the environment. Um, and so neuromarketing was actually met with a lot of backlash from academia. Um, you know, historically, there were letters that were put out to the New York Times signed by like hundreds of neuroscientists, you know, complaining about how a lot of the neuromarketing findings, quote unquote findings, were being publicized in the media. They were all talking about how, oh, we're gonna use neuroscience to read consumers' minds. And so academic neuroscience scientists were pretty upset about that. And so uh, neuromarketing itself has sort of changed over time, but really only in name, right? So um, along came the idea of uh, replacing the name with system one. Um, and system one is about systematic thinking, right? Which we right. talk about in another um, podcast or vidcast, um, but it comes from Kahneman, and sometimes the neuromarketing world kind of has like, they view Kahneman as dogma, right? So I'm right. um, really thinking that, you know, every system one is your non-conscious thinking, and system two is your cognitive thinking, right? So kind of like your id and mm -hmm. your ego. Um, yeah, and I think really what this attempt was more than anything in, it was a rebrand, you know, they, yeah. they were trying to legitimize. Exactly. Exactly. Because, you know, Kahneman got the Nobel prize. So obviously it must be absolute you know, truth. <laughs> um, but the problem with that is that they start saying that you could replace asking someone with using neuroscience uh, tools or system one, as they called it tools. Um, and that you didn't have to ask people. And that actually they started saying that consumers lie, right? Do consumers lie? No, why? I mean, why would they? You know, like, what's the, what's the, if they're, if they're trying to help with a, you know, survey or something, they don't get anything out of, you know, right. making up a story about how much they, they love a product they don't really use. You know, there's really not um, any benefit to them lying to you. So. And the other thing they tried to say was that system one was unbiased, right? Mm -hmm. Now that, that one always particularly got me because um, you know, they were trying to say that using neuroscience was a way to do an unbiased measure. And my argument is that any tool, whether it's a survey or whether it's a fMRI machine, right? Um, they, they are unbiased, right? The method itself is unbiased, but of the course. second a human touches it, it is biased. So if a tool is being designed, like the study is being designed by a human, which obviously it is, um, if the results are being interpreted by a human, it is automatically biased. And so I think, I feel like that's just a ridiculous claim. I, I agree. And I think that's also coming up a lot more with terms like machine learning and things like AI, where they're like, it's really nice because um, the algorithm, there's no human contact. So it just goes from this to this to this. And I would argue that no matter what, there, like you said, there is going to be a bias because some somewhere along that chain, it didn't magically appear. Like mm -hmm. the uh, some scientist or or researcher somewhere had to develop that algorithm. So there's always yeah. a chance of some type of you know human mm -hmm. human fault. But also garbage in is garbage out, right? So if you're using machine learning or AI to sort of say scour the internet for for language. 
um, you're going to get a lot of biased language there, right? Because and they and that's been proven in, in Google, right? That um, there's a lot of of racism that comes out, for example, in machine learning. Um, exactly. There was a, a Twitter that actually, it was a, a Twitter bot essentially that was collecting all of this information. They had to shut it down in within, I, I think it was a day or so they right. had been going because um, it just was spitting out the most, you know, cr like crude and horrible things that they <laughs> Yeah. It's yes, because nothing is, is unbiased as long as humans are involved. So mm -hmm. system one, um, it became kind of like overused, right? Overhyped. Right. Um, there are even companies that switch their name to system one. Um, and so that has changed too, right? So they tried to broaden it a little bit and they moved to using behavioral science as the new term. Um, and maybe it's a little more accurate to use behavioral science because when they use neuromarketing, it kind of made it sound like we were only doing neuroscience. Mm -hmm. But behavioral science also includes psychology and looking at behavior and also traditional tools. So it seems like an improvement, but you know, in all honesty, it is just a renaming of the same thing, right? Right, and, and I think that you bring up a really good point that um, it, I, it, I would argue also it's not only psychology that's involved in it, but there's statistics, economics. I mean, it is such an interdisciplinary field, which is part of what makes it so great, but also, um, you know, it's, it's, you can, uh, what's the phrase that it's like, you can be a jack of all trades, but a master. An expert at none. Yeah. yeah. Master at none. Exactly. Yep. So yep. you want to be cautious. And the other part of being cautious, I'm glad you said the word cautious because um, there, there's like this misperception that if it's a neuromarketing company and it's using a high tech tool, um, that that means that it is trustworthy and that the people are experts, right? Mm -hmm. um, so one thing I like to say right off the bat as well when people are interested in this stuff is that anyone can buy any of the tools that are used in neuromarketing or behavioral science, whatever we want to call it. Um, you can go to the SMI company if it still existed, um, which doesn't right now, but you could buy an eye tracking set of glasses or an eye tracking device. You can buy a set for EEG. You can buy a range of sets here. As you can see, there's two images for EEG. One is more academic grade. Um, one is a, a lower end with only two electrodes. You can see their obvious difference mm -hmm. um, because you get what you pay for. Now, you could also buy an fMRI, but that's going to cost you like $3 million and you need a hospital staff um, to run it. So it's very expensive. But if you have $3 million and you want to do fMRI, um, you can do it. You do not have to have a special license or credentials or level of education. You don't have to prove your, prove your expertise to own any of this equipment, right? Right. So basically what you're saying is there, there's no set qualifications. And I think it's also important as these as the field is getting renamed constantly, um, I think it's important to realize that I think it's in this adjustment period because it is a relatively new field and we are truly pioneers in this field to try and sort out, you know, what what's good and, and what um, needs to be improved. And, right. you know, and I think um, you said it really beautifully that there, you don't need a, a certain degree to be able to buy an EEG cap. Um, all you need to, is really the funds to be able to pay for the item plus shipping and handling. <laughs> so. Exactly. And so like um, the thing you got to think about, you have to remember that all these tools, these are the most popular tools that you're seeing here in you know, neuromarketing or behavioral science. And um, so anybody can buy them and hang up a sign and say, I'm a neuromarketer or I'm a behavioral scientist. Um, you don't have to have a neuroscientist on staff and often they don't 
sometimes they have a PhD on staff, but that PhD is often, uh, say, computer science, right, mm -hmm. or uh, engineering or physics, which is interesting and useful when you're doing EEG. But to interpret those results, you need someone that has that unique combination of psychology, neuroscience, and business, right? right? Absolutely. And I, and I stress that it, it's not just psychology and it's not just neuroscience. You have to have an understanding of, of the industry too, um, to really understand how, you know, how you can come up with results that are even useful. Exactly. Right? And I, and I think also there's a lot to be said that if, if, uh, especially, um, I'm just gonna use HCV as an example, but our research and innovation team has people from various different disciplines. So that way, when we come together to really brainstorm, um, we, you know, we hear each other out and different schools of thoughts have different, you know, approaches that they use. So right. it's so, so important to be able to, um, know, to almost know your place and say, okay, I can really help out here. But maybe like you said, it's better to, to have a psychologist lead the way on interpreting um, some type of a more macro behavior. Because um, you also have to know what you don't know, right? And you have to be able to admit it. And I think a lot of times neuromarketers do not want to admit that they don't know. So they will just gloss things over. Oh, yeah. um, because for us, I know that if we don't know something, we reach out to an expert, right? Um, and so that's a really important thing to think about. Um, you know, we're, we're always happy to talk about any of these tools, but I just want to stress some of the cautions here. Um, you know, we could obviously review how any of these tools work, but you know, the purpose is to really think about those uses and abuses. And I think sometimes when um, a neuromarketing company is talking to someone who's novice to using any of these tools, they try to use big, strong words to sort of overpower, mm -hmm. right? And, and kind of shame someone into just believing them. And so um, one thing I like to tell clients is that if, if someone can't tell you the limitations of any of these tools, then they're just trying to sell you something. Absolutely. And like anything in this world, every, every single thing has a limitation. So they should be able to come up with something to share with you that there, there should be some type of caution taken here, or there should be, um, you know, maybe pair it with another, another tool that could supplement for where it's lacking. And, right. you know, I think that's also, a, that's a great point to bring up. So all these tools do something different as well, right? So being able to recognize that one tool might be good in one situation, but not good in another situation is very important. So another thing I like to bring up, you know, to clients that are new to this is that, you know, if you go to a widget salesman, they're only going to sell you a widget. They're not going to sell you a not widget, right? Because they don't have the not widget. They don't care about the not widget. They are trying to make a buck off of their widget. So if you go to someone who does EEG, they're not going to tell you that EEG can't do it. They're going to tell you that it can. They're not going to tell you that perhaps implicit would be a better way to go. Um, so I think that that's really important to note as well. You know, when I say off the shelf, I really mean off the shelf because you can go onto Amazon right now. And if you have Prime, you can have it there, you know, within, you know, a day or so. Um, you know, depending on the COVID situation, obviously. But, you know, in the before times, <laughs> you know, you could have it there the same day if you wanted. Um, but you could order eye tracking, you can order um, biometrics, um, you can order uh, EEG, um, and all these things you could just order online. You Again, you do not need any special tool. You don't even have to go to a company that makes high quality equipment. You know, some of these prices are, are pretty low. Right, um, exactly. Yeah, and which I can be scary. 
Yeah. And I mean, they might be enticing because the products are, you know, so accessible, but at the same time, if you, if you have that product come in and you strap it on, you're like, Oh, it's reading something you, you have to also consider, um, with these tools, there are so many, not just the, the limitations, but also the limitations within the data and artifact. And there's just, it, it, it's very complicated and it's not so, um, you know, it's not always so user friendly that it's straightforward. Like, yeah, exactly. So it's something just to take a lot of precautions to make sure that yeah. you're, you know, getting what you pay for. So if we think back again, a hundred billion neurons, a hundred trillion connections, um, $79 for a headset that has maybe one electrode is not going to tell you what you need to know, right? Right, right. I mean, I just also, I just love the names of all these things because a lot of times people will, <laughs> They sound cool. They sound so cool and um, very much futuristic sometimes. And uh, it's, you know, it comes back to the basics. If it's too good to be true, it probably, you know, probably is. Absolutely, absolutely. Because sometimes we do have clients that come to us and say, can you put something on someone's head? Um, and you know, it's because they, when they think neuroscience, they think of EEG, right. And that's not always the answer. And so right. that, that's kind of what we're trying to drive home there. And I think um, it comes to this larger idea too. Um, and this is the philosophy, neuro philosophy side of me coming out, but you have to also consider that when you're thinking about the way you think it's, it's more than just the brain your whole body's thinking constantly. So mm -hmm. depending on what you're trying to get out of that research, you want to really consider that and then cater your um, research approach to whatever the question is you're trying to answer. Yeah. You got to use the right tool for the right situation, the right question. Um, I like this uh, sort of cartoon here because this happens a lot when you're thinking about say making a fragrance, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not as straightforward as what some people might think. So a lot of times marketing is coming to you and saying, we need this to be extrovert and spiritual. Well, how do you measure that? Right. <laughs> um, so when someone comes to you and says like, um, you know, we have to measure extrovert and spiritual um, and we want to wire someone up. Um, they're, they're thinking EEG, but where in the brain are you going to see activity for the word spiritual? I have no clue. Because <laughs> you don't, you, you know, don't, right? One of those things that I'm just like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's that. So a lot of times, um, the tools that are out there in our marketing can't even answer that question because, you know, to make it actionable that this is the winning product, you have to be able to prove that it's spiritual. Well, you can't do that with EEG. And so some people think, well, you know, maybe we can use. Um, facial coding, right? As you can see on the left mm -hmm. and you can't, right? Because there's no word there. It's not a basic emotion um, for facial coding. It does, that doesn't give it either. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the type of face I would make if somebody said, look spiritual. It's yeah. you know, <laughs> a funny concept to think about. Or And um, your face for spiritual will look different from my face for spiritual because it's not a basic emotion, right? Of course. Of course. Yeah. So, you know, the tool that would probably be most useful there would be implicit, right? Because implicit can look at specific words, but, you know, implicit's not going to tell you that something's, you know, more arousing, or it's not going to tell you that, you know, overall from the product experience that you're feeling more sad. Um, so it's about making sure you use the right one for that research question, right? And I would even complement that with, along with implicit, you might even want to just consider going with a traditional you know, a, a traditional method of a survey or an interview. Yeah. To understand 
Neuro isn't always the answer. Um, and that's coming from a company that provides neuro research. You know, I think we have been unique in that we are willing to say, no, it's not appropriate. Um, and if, if someone can't tell you that, then again, they're just trying to sell you something, right? Absolutely. So what are a couple um, takeaway points that we want to, we kind of dove into a, a couple different ideas here, but um, just to, to summarize, I think the idea- well, I mean, this isn't so much a summarization as it is, um, you know, kind of going off of what you had just said about making sure to include, uh, you know, asking someone, well, that's because you have to integrate. You, neuro data cannot be done alone. You cannot be standalone. You cannot replace asking someone. Um, in fact, neuro is terrible at something like liking. There is no neurological measure, there's no physiological measure that is good for liking. There's mm -hmm. some evidence that skin temperature is correlated to liking, but not very well. It's only like, you know, I think 60 or 70% correlation. Um, and so you should just ask someone. It's cheaper too. Oh, absolutely. And um, when you're considering different components of, of a product experience or of a consumer experience, when you're using neuroscience tools or you're using psychological tools, um, you should really, like, like you said, and we continue to say, is really know its, its place and know its benefits because it's only really giving you a, a portion or a fraction of that overall experience. So, so if you do integrate it, like you actually get better, right? So again, if you ask someone liking, but you measure something with EEG to look at maybe cognition or um, arousal or emotional valence, something like that, well, now you're having added information on top of their liking value, right? So combining data gives you better conclusions and better interpretations. Right. And I, I think it's also um, nice to mention here that technology um, should always come after establishing that research question so that way you can decide what to put in where. And um, technology is really advancing at a rapid pace, especially within, within this exciting field because it is so new. But we shouldn't um, let that mask us from thinking critically and deciding um, you know, exactly what technology will help us best understand the decision to be, you know, to be made. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, to kind of like sum up the sort of conversation we've had, because we could talk about this for days, True. Um, years, <laughs> I've been doing it for years, <laughs> but um, you know, here's some things to think about as you dive into wanting to use um, neuroscience in your research. Uh, make sure that you're using some sort of expert, right? But beware of someone just saying, trust me, right? Yes. And I so think- um, What does an expert I, mean? Right? Yeah. And I, it's, it's, that in itself could be its own conversation, <laughs> you know, because yeah. I've, I've seen firsthand people that have really impressive credentials, but like you said, maybe it's not necessarily, their credentials could be in a completely different field um, mm -hmm. that they're speaking to. So, yeah, so you can be a, a PhD in AI or computer science, and so you might know something about how to make a program for facial coding, for example, right? But you can't, you, you don't have expertise in psychology or emotions, right? right? Right, and I think also that the word expert, it's really based on a comparison of who you're talking to, because mm -hmm. if you're a quote unquote novice at the whole world of behavioral science, anybody could technically be an expert that is, you know, read maybe three more articles than you. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's the best place to be. And um, I actually 
uh, listened, maybe to connect this more to uh, a more current situation, I was listening to an epidemiologist talk about COVID-19. And um, it was really funny to hear that perspective because she's like, I know my limitations. I'm an epidemiologist, but I specialize in this. So that's like influenza is where I kind of lie. And, um, but I know when, when I should stop and where somebody else should step in and, and take forward. So really but no to that favor. point, don't let someone who claims to be an expert bully you into not asking questions, right? Because sometimes that happens where somebody comes in and says, well, I know, I know, I know. Well, that doesn't mean that you should just trust them off the bat, right? You, if you don't know, you should be able to ask. And if someone's not willing to answer those questions, then perhaps you should be a little concerned. Oh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, you can never, uh, you ne you're never wrong in asking a question. I think that that's great that you're trying to engage in, you know, in the research and really get a deeper understanding there. You know, everyone always says there is no dumb question. And, and I think that's really true. Absolutely. Because if the person can't answer the simple questions, the basic questions, then I would really question their expertise. Um, and so in that answer that they give, if they can't give those basics, if they can't give you a very valuable answer that you can understand, um, that should also give caution as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. And again, with um, personal experience, I, I've seen people try to approach answering um, rather than saying a very simple, let me get back to you, I'm not really positive. Um, they'll, they'll often throw in distractions that, that might not have anything mm -hmm. to do with it. Yeah, um, it doesn't so matter. Kind of like the words you were talking about before, these very techie words, you know, so if I throw in machine learning or right. if I throw in neuro in front or of something. Or often uh, it could be um, people, I'll, I'll ask a question or something and then they'll start discussing where their research has been funded. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, like there's really no, that, that doesn't go to my, that doesn't answer any of my questions. That's right. deterring you and trying to impress you in a different route. So really hold true to, and feel free to ask again if they can't answer the first time you're not satisfied. And, and sometimes their way of dodging the question is to put it in a black box, right? So if you, if I ask the question, well, how does that work? How can you make that prediction? And they say, well, it's our proprietary algorithm. Um, well, that's a warning sign to me because if they can't explain the how of their algorithm, um, then that might be because it's not real, right? Right, absolutely. And, and I think that's kind of where that reading the mind problem comes from because then the brain ends up being this black box that nobody can explain how it works, but they're telling you that they can make predictions from it. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, these are all really good points to consider. And while we do have so much access right now to the internet and we're very lucky that people are, are willing to take time to share their information, it, it's, it's so crucial to think critically and to really um, feel comfortable in being skeptical because, you know, there's just so much out there and you don't want to be misled. And that's what being a scientist is all about, you know, questioning things, um, making sure there's real evidence and, um, you know, doing quality research, right? Absolutely. Yep. That's why we have these curious conversations. <laughs> so that's just the tip of the iceberg uh, of what we love to talk about on this topic. But um, I think we're going to wrap it up. Uh, if you have any thoughts, please feel free to like this podcast and make a comment below. Um, you know, subscribe and we would love to talk about it more. So feel free to reach out. Um,
connect with us on LinkedIn. You can email either of us with any thoughts or questions um, and tweet with us. Uh, Catherine and myself also like to share lots of research, um, so feel free to reach out any of those places. We post a lot of our thoughts and white papers, et cetera, on our blog, um, so feel free, feel free to uh, check out more there. Exactly. And if anybody is interested in have, um, sharing a topic that you'd like us to cover, again, feel free to reach out. We'd love to chat with you or possibly, you know, make it into a new vidcast. So always feel free to uh, connect with us. Yeah, maybe we'll even have more people on besides us. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much and uh, take care. Join us again next time. Thank you. Bye.